You're tuned in to the Manjeet Minhas podcast. The world of business is a challenging one. From the youngest entrepreneurs to the biggest and most respected names across Canada, you need to have a strong will, determination, and skills to navigate to the top. I'll be talking to everyone from budding entrepreneurs to the established leaders in the world of business. You'll hear their stories of where they were, where they are, and where they're going. I'm Manjeet Minhas, and this is my podcast. Hello, and welcome to today's show. My guest today is Cynthia Loist. Cynthia is a television host for CTV's The Social, a best-selling author, sex educator, and the creator of Find Your Pleasure. Through certain points in her life, she went through different directions. It was all able to come back together to allow her to become a strong, smart, and well-rounded role model in and out of the media industry. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, thanks for joining me. I am so looking forward to today's conversation because I think it's going to bring people into your world a little bit and and get them to understand uh, Cynthia's life journey, which maybe some people might not know about because I definitely didn't know a ton about it. Well, I'm always delighted to talk about it. I love stories like this too. Like I think you and I both share that interest in finding out how people made their way through life to get to where they are today. There's always ups and downs and all arounds. And certainly my story is no different. Yeah, agreed. I've definitely discovered through three seasons of this podcast that people that I thought I knew really well, I didn't know like half of their life journey. And so it's always interesting for me to even find out about people that are around me. So let's kind of start back in the day. You grew up in Barrie, Ontario. And you moved to Toronto at the age of 18 to study film at York University. And so where and why the interest in film and TV? Well, you know, growing up, Barrie wasn't considered a small town per se. And yet it felt a little bit like a small town to me. For as long as I could remember, I wanted to get out of that town and be in the big city, which was Toronto. I didn't feel like I fit in. I was in, I went to a Catholic school growing up. And I was always very interested in kind of counterculture and alternative cultures and diversity and diversity of thought. So I devoured film and any chance I could get, I was at, you know, the VHS store getting out, <laughs> a, you know, a movie of some kind, the weirder, the better. And when it came time to me, for me in later high school to start thinking about where I was going to go for post-secondary education, what was presented to me at school was like, well, you could maybe think about going into engineering, or you can go into teacher's college, you can go into psychology. And it had never dawned on me until I met this person, a friend of my sister's who was like, I'm going to school for film and television. And I thought, you can do that? Like, it just, it really hadn't even, I was like, you can make a living out of that? You can go to school for that? So for me, the idea of going into that world was immediately seductive. The problem was, is that going to the only Catholic school at the time, we had very limited resources. There was no photography there was very limited even writing courses. So I did my best to put together a portfolio and clearly it worked because I got in. But once I got to York University, it was like being thrown in the deep end of a pool. It really truly was. One, I'll give you an example. One of my first classes with my screenwriting professor, picture this, come from again, Catholic school where everything was heavily censored. You didn't talk about certain things. You didn't say certain words. And my screenwriting professor turned to me and said, she was asking me about my, what I'd written. And she said, so do these characters fuck? <gasps> and uh, my little 18 year old self was like, uh, um, uh, 
like I didn't even know how to answer. So thrown in the deep end, going from small town, very heavily censored of thoughts, censored of experience into, okay, I guess anything goes here. I better figure out who the hell I am. Yeah. Wow. That is definitely a lot to take in at 18 (laughs) when you have been really literally sheltered for so much of your life. In the backdrop to this as well, I will say what was going on behind the scenes was my sister, who was a couple of years older than me, right at the end of high school, she had become a mother at the age of 18. So I was 16 at the time, she was 18. And so I was starting to connect these dots of what it was like to be raised in an environment where no one talked about sex and the very real impact that that could have, particularly on young women. And so alongside this path that I knew I was very interested in film and storytelling, I was also very interested in human sexuality. And I was on the sidelines trying to read everything I could because I wanted to become, you know, I put this in quotes, that friend who anyone could come to who had information in the hopes that I would be able to help some of my friends navigate this and not end up in the situation that my sister was in. Gotcha. And, and that's a lot to take in for a variety of reasons at such a young age. But also the fact that you decided that you wanted to educate yourself and you were still figuring out who and what you were and that you needed to build a career out of this and make money because you chose not to do the nursing, teaching or engineering jobs, right? That's right. I managed to, you know, graduate and get a Bachelor of Fine Arts in screenwriting, even though by the end of that phase of my life, at the end of York University, I pretty much was sure that I would never be a screenwriter. I realized through the course of that, that to become a successful screenwriter was going to be extraordinarily difficult, even if I was somebody who was extremely talented, extremely driven. In that realm, there's so much competition. And you really, if you really want to make a go of that too, you need to be in the States. You need to option your screenplays for bigger productions. In Canada, as you know, there's very limited productions that go on. And a lot of times the person who directs is the person who writes. So it's a very complicated industry. And so in a way, I reached the end of my degree and I was kind of like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then I decided that I was going to go back to school for radio and television arts. They had, wasn't a master's program. It was a, what was called advanced standing. And this was at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson. And so it was a two-year, it was a four-year program truncated into two years. And so me going to that, I, I thought I can fast track, I can get an internship and I can at least get some really practical skills that I could bring these pieces of my life together. And what was interesting is, is that I was sitting at home one day and I turned on the TV and I saw a show called Sex TV. Mm. And it was a show that was a very late night show. It was on city TV in Toronto and, and in parts across Canada. It was a documentary series. Yeah. Okay, you remember. It was a very edgy and smart. Mm. And I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I think the episode that I tuned into was something about like North America's obsession with breasts. And it was, it felt like a thesis project of like, how did we get here? And what does it have to do with, you know, our relationship to our mother? There was a psychological aspect. I was just like riveted. And I thought, I'm going to do everything I can to get an internship there. And that's exactly what I did. Gotcha. And, and was it what you expected it to be as far as the TV world? I mean, the very first day I entered into this building that I'm actually sitting in right now, 299 Queen West, it was a legendary building. It still is. It was the place where much music was born. It was the place Mm -hmm. where fashion television was born. And I remember walking into the building and thinking, if I can get a job here and get paid to be here, I will be the happiest person on earth. 
And that was in 1999. And the first time I got to meet this, the crew at, at Sex TV, I, I immediately felt like I'd found my people. I'd gone from being in this small town and going through university where I met a lot of really interesting people. But the way that people in this group of eclectic people from all kinds of backgrounds and ethnicities and sexual orientations came together and were really passionate about the work that they were doing, they were like a group of incredible misfits. <laughs> and I was like, this, this is where I'm meant to be. My first job opportunity in television came a little bit after that. And it was at fashion television, where I got to learn how to become a segment producer. And I did that for a good six months, learning a skill set. And then it also helped me go back to sex TV. They had a position available. It was actually a downgrade in... I went from being a segment producer to being a researcher. And I did that because I saw more growth opportunity there. And also because of the subject matter. I knew that I wanted to be back there. And so when I went back there, sure enough, within a few months, I'd moved from researcher to, I think, production coordinator to segment producer. And then eventually, it just kept... I was a producer. And then I, I had headed up the entire channel. This is all within a, probably a 10-year period of time. Wow, that's quite the trajectory. And I love how <laughs> growth doesn't always have to be in titles. And how we think it always has to move and stack each other. It can go down, it can go lateral, it can go right. As long as it's teaching you something and you're learning more, not only about yourself, but about the industry that you're in. I really do think that so many people are stuck on a, the, the salary and the title of, often and not the work to understand that, right. how it can actually be part of the, a piece of, to a bigger puzzle. Like I think of that in 1999 and I think how far ahead of its time it was as far as the people around the table. Now we're talking about DE&I and a lot of things that you guys were already experiencing 22 years, 23 years ago, which is fascinating to me. Well, and I love that you said that too, because I often get irritated. Not irritated is the wrong word. I, I, I have a little moment to myself when people are thinking they're talking about sexual orientations and the kind of like different ways people identify and think about themselves and different kinds of fringe groups to do with fetishes and things like that. And I'm like, we really were not only just talking about these things, but we were meeting people. And you know, the, the show was an amazingly well-respected show. And, and you know, we really did do the range from celebrities to academics to Pulitzer Prize winning authors to priests to porn stars. And everybody we interviewed, we recognized had a story to tell. And we treated them with the same level of respect. And what we were trying to do is hold a mirror up to the way in which the truth was about the diversity of human sexual experience. And it was very, very eye-opening. And people would ask me the most interesting questions when I was producing for that show. Because we traveled the world. Like we went everywhere from you know San Francisco, New Orleans, to Japan, to Italy, to Brazil. Oh, wow. And people would be like, how does this impact your own like, sexual life? If you, you know, spend your days, for example, cleaning people's houses, do you ever want to clean your own house at the end of the day? I think that's the analogy. But for me, it, it very much made me much more discerning, A, about what I found to be you know, attractive or sensual or interesting. But it also, I think, opened me up to understand... I, don't, I, have so, I mean, I went into it with very little judgment, but even more so. You know, people get so triggered when it comes to sexual identity and talking about sex. And meanwhile, it's like, it's the thing that really unites us all. We all have a story. So I've always found it to be one of the most provocative and rich subjects. And it's something that is steeped in a lot of shame, depending on how you were raised. 
And so my real interest is helping to dismantle a lot of that shame because I think shame leads us to do bad things. Very true. And it's something that everybody does and the, the least talked about. I agree with you. That's right. And something that we all, in a variety of different ways, society, no matter where you are in the world, definitely, you know, I, I, I joke all the time. My parents are from India. I'm born and raised here. But I always say to my parents, you know, you come from a country that is one of the most populated in the world. So people are having sex. So why are you not talking about it? Why are you ashamed? to like talk anything about it. And so sure. on that topic, you went and got furthered your education by getting a sex education certificate from the University of Michigan. I have never heard of such a thing. So how did you find it? And, and why did you find it to be important? Yeah. So, I mean, basically it was an interesting time period in my life. So I went from doing producing for years. I had no interest in being on camera at all. But anyway, so fast forward to the social I was working on the social. I just had a baby basically when we launched. And when I look back now, I think I must have been thinking like, should I have another baby or should I try to birth something else? And I think I was already thinking about writing a book. And I thought I was already being tapped on the show to be a sort of relationship expert and come to the table because I had this producing background to front segments talking about sexuality. And I've been doing that for a while. And I just thought, I have all this experience. But sex is one of those funny things. Like unless you're a nurse or a doctor or a psychotherapist, a lot of times people don't give you sort of the respect that you, you may or may not deserve. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and further my education. So then started the process of finding out what was available. And to my delight and surprise, the University of Michigan School of Social Work had a kind of hybrid course available where it was a two-year program. I think it was around that long. And where some of it was in person over weekends, and a lot of it was remote over weekends. So it was a lot of work. It was such an amazing experience because it was a group of, it was a group of doctors, nurses, educators, therapists from all walks of life. This was during the time when Trump came into power as well. So we had people who were from conservative backgrounds, obviously very liberal backgrounds. There was a woman from Saudi Arabia there who was a therapist there. And so I think we bonded in a way that was very interesting and unexpected during a very fraught period. And I look back now and I think to myself, there were a lot of people saying at that time, this is the beginning of the rollback of gay marriage. This is the beginning of the rollback of Roe v. Wade. And I, I think naivete is, is a bit of a, of a theme in, as I'm talking in my life. And I was just like, no, there's no way. There's like, there's no way. And they were right. It's, it's definitely a remind. I think about back to that because that was now, you know, several years ago. But I, anyway, I, I digress. All that to say, it was a wonderful experience to go and get a sex education certificate from that group and that cohort. And so that is something that you've been, I think, working on for a while. As you mentioned, when your sister became pregnant at the age of 18, you wanted not only to learn, but to educate others. And so you decided to write a book called Find Your Pleasure, The Art of Living a More Joyful Life. And tell me a little bit about the premise of why, based on now, you know, a quite a lifetime of educating and learning about sex education and pleasure, did you decide that you wanted to put it all together in a book that mm -hmm. has a beautiful cover, by the way? Oh, thank you. But why did you think that this was something that the world needed? It actually started with the website and then it became a book. I was doing the social and I thought I was living sort of a happy life on paper. Everything seemed good. I was part of this great show. I had this, you know, lovely son and a healthy relationship. And, you know, all these things are great. And 
at the end of the day, I was coming home and I was drowning in like to-do lists and mother guilt and worries about, you know, was I good enough? Was I, you know, should I get Botox? Like I had all these, like, you know, this never ending narrative in my head. Am I smart enough? Am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I young enough? I think this is something that most women go through. And when I started reaching out to my friends, I asked them, you know, when was the last time you really felt good and you've really done things for yourself? And the range of answers were everything from like, I can't remember the last time I did something for myself to one woman who just wrote to me and just said, ha ha. Like she, she, like it was a big joke to even think about a time when she was living for just herself. And I thought there's something here that we're missing out on. And I started to do a deep dive on the word pleasure mm. because it was something that again, with my Catholic background, the way I was raised was that anytime in particular, women got this message, girls, if you're going to indulge in anything, it's a slippery slope to ruin was the message that I got. And that was in, in all kinds of realms. It was like, better not eat too much or else you'll get too big. Better not speak too strongly or else you're going to be seen as too bossy. Better not ask for what you want in the bedroom or ask for anything for, for that matter that pleases you erotically, because then you'll be seen as one of those types of girls. And I put that in quotes. So I started to look into this and what I discovered was that pleasure strategically has been placed as a kind of like dirty little cousin to happiness in our world. And I think that for a very good reason, like I think that patriarchal systems don't want women to start to tap into what brings them joy. And that's not to say I want to put a pause here. That's not to say that there aren't aren't some kind of superficial pleasures that can become addictive and problematic. But that's usually the way that we see it automatically. There are many other ways, many other lenses to see pleasure through. And I do think that it's actually, it's going to become a bigger and bigger conversation in the next couple of years because more and more research is showing how the pleasure centers in our brains that can be activated by walking in the woods or activated by creative endeavors. They are the same things that get lit up from taking a drug to stimulate it. Obviously, we don't want to indulge in those. But what I was finding is, is that so many women are so busy making ends meet, being high achieving, making sure their family's taken care of. But at the end of the day, what are they turning to? They're just turning to their automatic glass of wine, or they're turning to all kinds of very, maybe at the spa day once a, a week. And what I hope to, and, I, and again, this is the first book I wanted, I did it as an exercise because I wanted to force myself to start thinking about pleasure and going out and exploring pleasure and then writing about it. I needed the book that I wrote. <laughs> But I think going forward, I think it is actually a really feminist act and an important one. I'll just say this, Mandy, when I was doing my book tour, which was at the beginning of 2020, right before all hell broke loose, I met a bunch of women who read the book, obviously on the book tour. And what came up time and time again were women who told me, often tearfully, that they had spent their entire life in the service of, other, of their husbands, of their children. And, you know, here they were 55 plus and they couldn't even remember. They didn't even know what brought them pleasure on a deep fundamental level. And to me, therein lies, you know, a huge arena that I think has been left unexplored. And I want to help fix that. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I think that, yeah, society and we as women, especially don't take our pleasure seriously, whatever the definition is. And I think that I love that you started from the point of defining what pleasure is in a variety of different ways, because it is a loaded word in a lot of ways. And for some people, it means nothing. And in some ways, it can mean a lot more than that. And I think that 
it is just as I say, success has to have a definition and it is different for everybody. So it is the word pleasure. And I, and I like that that's how you started the journey of educating, but also saying that there's lots of different ways and that there's some science behind it, which is always really, really interesting. You've talked about it in a variety of different ways that it is something to live. And the second part of your title is the art of living a more joyful life. That also joy is something that is a very loaded word for a lot of people that they don't know often what that means to them. That can mean, like you say, spending it with friends, or it can mean something deeper. And I think that that is something that we don't sit back and think about as much as we should. Well, I think it's gotten worse than ever before with, with the, of course, like smartphones and the fact that we're always tapped in. Because when I think about pleasure, I think about like the small P pleasures would be things related to our senses, you know, just tapping into the very many incredible things that we can smell, touch, taste, hear, and feel. But then I, the big capital P pleasures are those, you know, making life plans and the kind of feeling when you fulfill the goal and the kind of like thinking deeply about uh, how you want your space to exist. Maybe for some people, it's about no longer buying into the, the script and the narrative that has been sold to you about what success is supposed to look like. I think there are so many different ways that are so individualized. Like right now, uh, I, I, this is on my mind right now. I just listened to a, a podcast featuring a woman named Trisha Hearsey. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. And she's known as uh, the nap minister. She's written a book and she also has a, a website. And for her, she's a woman of color. She's from the United States. And I mean, again, I don't want to paraphrase. I want to lead people to her stuff, her work. But I wrote about napping as well from a different perspective. She writes about it from a, like a political perspective, that a, a, an anti-capitalist perspective even, and as a revolutionary perspective. So I think that joy comes in many forms. And I think it is about people taking the time to get to know themselves, to be resistant to what is expected of them, and to indulge. In a smaller way, I think a lot of times about the fights that I often hear about from couples because people reach out to me all the time for relationship advice. And one of the most common questions I get is like, uh, how do I spice things up? How do I, how do I get back if my partner wants it more than I do? Right. And this is such a complicated and layered thing. But if we go back to this joy piece, what I often want to reach out and say back in heterosexual partners to the woman is like, what would bring you joy? What would bring your life more joy? What would bring your sex life more joy? The answer might be to have less of it. And that's right. okay. The answer might be to, for my husband to take care of the laundry more often. And that would bring me more joy, which might make me want to cuddle with him. I might not. like So all these little tiny pieces about people getting to know themselves and also giving themselves permission to say yes, to say no, to say maybe so to any of the things that they are interested in is, I think, huge. But we are too busy. We're on our phones. We're running around from point A to point B. We're taking Johnny to soccer. You know, we've got appointment after and stupid meeting after stupid meeting. So I don't think we're given a lot of time to do that. And I think to claim it back is an act of resistance and we should do it more often. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. And it, my advice to always people is because I definitely have such great advice like you do is actually just to build an hour into your day to block it off for yourself, to just think, to put your devices away, to have a pen and paper, because I am an advocate of pen and paper still, 
And to Me say too. that, think about just like whatever <laughs> is on your mind, whether it be about your work, whether it be about your personal life, like whatever it might be just pie in the sky, kind of dreaming. It could be napping for that hour. But to keep that hour just for thinking time, I think is so crucial because we are always otherwise kind of on the hamster wheel going, what's next, what's next, what's next, without sometimes taking a breath until we're exhausted at the end of the day and your head hits the pillow and you're out. And that also does it because let's face it, when I when we your head hits the pillow often these days, it's like, oh, have you watched the newest show? Have you watched the newest documentary? What are you binging? What are you? So even I find that time is now dictated by everybody around to say, okay, like, have you watched ABC and XYZ? Because that also gets a big long list to do. (laughs) Yes, 100%. And and like, you think about that at the end of the day that we end up feeling like we didn't take any time to reflect. I think it's actually... Some of this stuff sounds sort of so obvious, but you don't want to wake up at the end of the day. We should think more about death. As, as we live through life. And those things should be making our choices for us in a way because I try to do that. I feel like I literally try to wake up in the morning and think about, you know, if this is the last day on earth, how, how have I spent my time? You know, how have I, de- how have I dealt with, with the people around me? How have I dealt with myself? And have I carved out enough time for me to really experience joy? Yeah, agreed. It, it, it's a conundrum. And I think that unless you think about it, can you ever answer the questions? or try to at least solve them. So while you were shooting The Social um, season one, so let's talk about The Social now. You, uh, how did that opportunity come your way? Well, so in order to answer that, I have to rewind to go back to the end of Sex TV, which it had been a series and then it had been a channel and I was in charge of original production. I had this team of people. We were creating amazing documentaries and winning awards. And then came 2008. So 2008 was uh, one of the first recessions of my lifetime that I remember living through as an adult. And that was when a lot of industries really had a very hard time, including the television industry. We'd already been bought out or merged with CTV at that point. And I could sense from the meetings, because I was in meetings with sort of high-level executives, that there was the potential for the entire team to be gone. And I thought, okay, well, there's a good chance that I'm going to be gone too. So I did my best to try to maneuver and save people and whatever. And when the day did come that Sex TV was indeed canceled, I had already been approached by an executive who had said to me, you know, you, you should really try to be on air. You should be the face for your channel. And I had no interest at all. And I said, no, I said, no, I said, no. And then when, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like condensing the story, but basically eventually I was like, okay. Here's what I can do. If Sex TV is ending, I can host and produce a show that will air on late nights on CP24, which is a local Toronto news channel. It's part of this building. I said, I'll do a late night call in kind of sex show. What if they would anyone go for that? It was totally not their brand. They do news mostly, but they did have a couple of like non news late night shows. So to my surprise and horror, they said, okay, let's do it. So suddenly, this was around, I can't remember when this was exactly, 20, not 2009 to 2010. And so I hosted that for a bit of a year and a bit. And talking, it was a lot like going to university. I was thrown in the deep end. I had to learn how to read a teleprompter, roll a teleprompter, get comfortable on air. And when I say that I was terrified, 
<laughs> it's like a complete understatement. I had anxiety attacks. I put myself through a bunch of improv classes to try to get comfortable with it. My husband or my partner, who is he's a director of photography, he put me on camera, like just with him and I, so I could get comfortable. I could hardly string a sentence together. I was terrified. So anyway, you get comfortable pretty fast because I had to do it like twice a week live. So I did that for a bit. Um, that started to end. I was lucky enough to get hired on a little show called Inner Space where I traveled and got to meet like... I got to go on Hollywood junkets. It was very... It, it was like a movie, nerdy movie show. It was very... Not part of the topics that I was normally doing, but I, it would also massage a certain part of me as well. And during that time, I got pregnant. And when I was eight months pregnant, all of a sudden, I got the call to say, Hey we have a secret project that we'd like you to audition for. And I don't think it even had a name then. It was being referred to as the sort of, you know, it's kind of, it's a talk show, kind of like The View. And so I got brought down to this secret meeting where I had to audition with a bunch of different people and then a bunch of different people and then a bunch of different people. And that went on, I think, for two days, maybe a month and a half, two months later. I thought there's no chance. I was eight months pregnant and I knew that they wanted to launch that summer, which would have put me at like, uh, like literally right after giving birth. And but then I, I got the call and they said, we want you to be on the show. And they said, There's, we're starting in August. So I was maybe two months or three months into having a newborn. And so I did it. I was quite, you know, comparatively to like someone like Melissa Grello, my co host, I was very green when it came to being on air. Right. And same with Lady Louie, she she had done eTalk for a long period of time, I had done like a couple of years of what I just told you. Right. So that was basically how the social came to be. And it was interesting because looking back, the very first four people who auditioned was myself, Melissa, Lainey Louie, and Tracy Melshore, who were the original four who were hired. The very wow. first configuration. That's incredible. And, and usually it's always interesting that stories like that Many people, including myself, I said no first too when Dragon Sun called me to audition. Yeah. <laughs> is that you often need somebody else to help push you to say, you can do this. And you can. Yeah, did you not believe that? Were you like, no, nah, I don't want to do this oh, yeah. at all? I was like, no, I too had a one year old at home and was like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. I think that we all have something to bring. And once you start it, and I think that all, people on TV, despite what it might look like, sometimes are very hard on themselves as to what they look like, what they sound like, whether or not they're giving too much of their opinion or not enough. And and I think you guys all really gel because I watch it often and really enjoy it because of your unique perspectives. But also you guys are very sure in your opinions and not scared to give them. Understanding that there's a time limit and it's still TV and all those kinds of great things. But understanding that you're unique individuals and have different backgrounds and perspectives. And in your case, kind of the go-to sometimes that thinks very differently about how you're raising your son, about pleasure, about a lot of topics that aren't usually talked about on daytime TV or talked about at all. And I think that that is always really interesting to me. But also when I read that you had an anxiety attack the first season of filming and that is anxiety is something that you have dealt with and and continue to that it is interesting because most people would not imagine that because you come across really great and put together and you know, like you say can read from a teleprompter and can give thoughtful debate with a lot of different topics 
And I always find it really fascinating, especially with anxiety as to how many people it affects and how it manifests itself and how the more people are talking about it. You know, in my own family, I don't know if my mom will like me sharing this, but a couple of years ago, very recently, we discovered she had anxiety after doing every test under the sun to find out what was going on. We thought it was health. That seems very easy to be able to say, pop a pill and your blood pressure will go down and or whatever else. And it was really eye-opening for us as a family to even discuss it, talk about it, learn about what anxiety is and for who it manifests itself in different ways. And it is, it is a topic that most people do not want to talk about. Is your mom now starting to utilize different like techniques that are working for her? Has she accepted that this is, that this is truth? It took a while, but yes, because definitely a lot of techniques and some meds for sure have helped her take control of her body, her feelings, her mind in a lot of different ways. And she's 68. And I think that we all look back and say in a variety of different ways, oh, maybe she had this then, or that can explain some situations and times in her life. And it's also for everybody else around, you know, often I will ignore because I travel a ton and always have for the last 22 years since I've been an entrepreneur. And I will sometimes ignore the text to say, you know, did you eat? Or are you? I'll be like, yeah, 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 whatever. And so like, but I had to understand that for her, she's thinking about that. So I need to take the 10 seconds that says, yes, I had dinner. Yes, I'm good. Yes, I'm in my hotel. And it's not only about me. Do you have anxiety at all? Or? I'm not yet. <laughs> but okay. No, I don't. I was but... going to say, because that for me would trigger me. Like that would be, my mom has anxiety undiagnosed for sure. Um, and so if she was to start pummeling me with questions and she mostly is great about not doing that, it would trigger my anxiety. So like, I'm mostly good about it now, but it's, I'm just so glad to hear you say though, like that your family's talking about it. I do think more and more people are talking about it and thinking about it and recognizing that it's not uncommon. And because when I was growing up, I just, I didn't even know how to name it. Like the first mm -hmm. time I had a panic attack was I was in university. I think I was standing in a, in an art class or something like that. And all of a sudden my heart just started going, there was nothing that prompted this. My heart just started speeding up or maybe I had to say something. I don't know. It might've been linked to something. And then I thought I was going to pass out. And then I didn't think about it for a while. And then another time it was like the lights were turned down at some event that I had. And all of a sudden I went into a panic. I, I started to have a spin and then it kind of like dormant again for a while. And then of course, this whole process of doing on air, what was interesting to me is that we often give that a piece of advice where, you know, things should feel good and comfortable if you're in the right, on the right path. Like that's, I feel like a piece of advice that I've heard from, you know, whether it's career coaches or leadership, like things should feel a little bit uncomfortable, but not super uncomfortable. And if I'd completely taken that advice or, or maybe even not thought about that in a complex way, I would have run for the hills when it came for the way that I felt when I started doing on air. But something in it obviously gave me enough hope or reward. And, and it goes back to the original urge, which is that I wanted to be a storyteller. And so I started out as a screenwriter and I wasn't great at that. And then I you know, ended up telling other people's stories through documentaries. And now I guess it was time for me to tell my own story. And even though that brought me huge amount of anxiety and panic, 
I felt like that was something that I wanted to do, that I thought was important, that it was relatable to people. And so even though it caused me a lot of fear and a huge amount of self-doubt and self-flagellation, I would say I was very unkind to myself for a long period of time. I stuck it through and got the sort of gold at the end of the rainbow out of it. Because now I feel like I still, though, Manji, I don't know about you, whenever you do a speaking engagement, this doesn't make me nervous doing the social doesn't make me nervous, but you put me in a new environment, even if it's the same speech I've done a million times, I will have horrible anxiety before I go out on the stage. As soon as I'm on stage, gone. Are you the same way? Me too. I have no problem doing this. I have no problem shooting Dragon's Den. I can like, I don't want to say do it in my sleep, but because, you know, there's a lot going on, but absolutely not an issue. But as soon as I, and I have given hundreds, probably thousands by now keynotes, and absolutely, I cannot eat. I cannot drink before I get up. I, my st- butterflies in my stomach, as soon as I hit the stage, second sentence out, I'm totally fine. And I don't know where 60 minutes went. I get off the stage and I'm like collapsing and I need food and I'm thirsty and I'm like exhausted. And it's exactly the way I am too. Well, I'm glad to hear this. I mean, and I, I would love to say to people listening like that I have some tips and techniques and I don't. The only thing that has ever helped me and it's helped me a little bit is that Jason, my partner, once said to me, you know, it's just misplaced excitement. Like you're actually excited. It's the exact... And it's, this is scientifically sound. Like it really is the same cocktail of hormones and chemicals that are going on when you're nervous. It's just that we're telling ourselves a different story with our brain. And we can go down the spiral of that story. Whereas if you can convince yourself that, oh, I'm excited about this. This is going to be a great time. I, I, like I, I'm not saying it works completely, but it helps about 10%. <laughs> but I like your misplaced excitement because I think we can all think of times that even in, in, in a meeting when we're, you know, taking off our mute button in a Zoom call or in, in around a board table or whatever it might be, that you have all of those nerves and you think that it's not normal. But it is normal and everybody has them. Yeah, completely. And I don't think it ever completely goes away until maybe, yeah, until maybe you've kind of, it's time for you to move on from whatever it is that is. But I don't think I'm ever going to lose it completely because anytime you put me in a new environment, it's going to trigger it because I'm going to care. I don't think I'm ever going to stop caring about, and I don't think you will either, about (laughs) making sure that you're not a bore to people. That that makes you a good human. (laughs) Agreed. I hope so. I hope so. And so I've, I've heard you say that having a panic attack was a silver lining for you because it, it may made you have a life-changing decision. So what was that? I, I mean, I think the life-changing decision with the panic attack was, I mean, the, the one that you're thinking of or that you're describing right now was when I was on the social, I had, it was early days. So my, I shared an office with Melissa Grello and my morning was like coming in sleep deprived. I would have to, I would, was pumping three times a day in that office. So I don't know if you ever breast pumped, but it is quite a, oh, it is something you didn't miss out on because it is ridiculous. I got a lot of, a lot of people telling me that was not an easy time for sure. The first time. It was not an easy time. It's not. I mean, people think, you know, breastfeeding comes so quote unquote naturally. It's a, it's a lot of work. It is not natural. It is not easy. And, and then when you add a machine to it, I mean, it's a whole other level. So you know, I'd be disrobing. And normally, like our entire team was mostly women. So people would knock on our door. I'd just let them in, whatever. 
that day someone knocked on the door and it was like know, the maintenance guy. And I'm sitting there like this. And so <laughs> in my kind of kerfuffle, I knocked over one of the things of milk. And it sounds like a nothing thing, but it was a big deal in my sleep deprived, mommy guilted, working mom brain. Anyway, so that set me off. I had to quickly get, you know, get myself together, get ready, go out on stage. And again, a combination of not enough food, the thing that had happened. I think Justin Trudeau was on the show that day. And I walked as well before he was prime minister. I walked down the stairs. And when I sat down, I thought, I'm going to have a panic attack or I'm going to throw up or I'm going to pass out. Like, but I was having a panic attack, but I was just like, I was cognizant of the fact that I wasn't sure I was going to like make it through the show. So I did make it through the show. I did cry the whole way home. And that was, that was the thing. That was the day where I was like, I need to do something. That was the day I started reaching out to my friends. And for some reason, it was like, I know that the way that I'm living right now is temporary, but I know it's not good. I know that this habit that I'm getting into, which is like making sure everybody else is taken care of except for me, is bad. And I'm seeing all my female friends do it too. So that was when I decided I'm going to I'm going to start writing about writing was a big pleasure of mine as well like I wrote for pleasure and I let let that slip. So that all led to the website which is really yeah which has led us here today. Yeah, that that's pretty fascinating. And I love that the idea of overall well-being and that it has many pieces which is really what you've described in our chat today is really the way to think about it. It's just not one thing that you've discovered is what makes a happy, joyful, ple- pleasured individual? Well, I was just going to say the book to me, I was like, I always thought of it as recipes for living as opposed to recipes for eating. Like, and it's a collection of essays built around different aspects of life. I've got things about love and relationships, things about the home, about travel, about creativity. And I section it off in this way because that's just sort of where. I was writing, I would find at the end of a a day, I was now being more thoughtful as I launched my website. I was like being more thoughtful about my day and trying to insert pleasure where I could and then starting to talk to more and more people. So the pieces grew out of that. Everything from I'm taking a walk down at the beach and and I started contemplating like water. What is it about water that, you know, people go in droves to be down there? Like, what is it about us and our bodies and how we're built mostly of water and you know, as babies, we're in our mother's bodies filled with water and we are so connected to the rhythms and they're soothing and this kind of deep pleasure. And to me, that was what it was. I didn't want to take for granted anything that was like right around me that could fill me up. And, you know, I could see that I was getting into these patterns of just distracting myself. When I was on my tour as well, I had a woman, she, she was somebody who was a mul- living in a multi-generational home. She was a caregiver for not only her children, but her husband's parents. She was in charge of like basically the CEO of the home, unpaid, unrewarded labor. And she's like, how can I take out time for me? And, you know, I realized in that moment that this conversation around pleasure could be seen as a really privileged thing. And certainly I have put privilege. And yet I think just basically the way that our bodies were built, we are designed to experience pleasure. I love that your curiosity is really, I feel what defines so many entrepreneurs is that how they start and how they're led down a path. And I think that your constant curiosity of a lot of different things, like just how you said water, such a simple thing. And you had so many questions about it and throughout your life have, have led you down some really curious journeys and some really interesting experiences that 
I'm fascinated to learn about and that I love that you're sharing that with your audiences because I think it's truly remarkable that what you've been able to learn that has helped you in your life that you were curious about has can help others. And I think that that give back is not something that everybody does. A lot of people find those secret sauce things and then they feel like they need to keep them to themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the whole thing is it does feel like when you discover kind of things and ideas, I think that most people have an artist inside of them. Most people have a creative part inside of them and they may feel afraid to share that. But during that period of time, it, it provided a lot of gifts for me in two, two ways, I'll, I'll say, in terms of the, the theme of pleasure. So I did it years ago. This is like well before I was working as a career person. But one of the things in my year off, I did this stream of consciousness writing in the mornings because I didn't know, am I going to go back to school? Am I going to continue to travel? Am I going to try to find a job? What the hell am I going to do with my life? So after like 12 weeks of writing in the morning, three minutes at a time, blah, 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 I went and looked back and there were two things that were revealed to me. One was that I was constantly writing about storytelling, writing about how the people that I met at a bar, let's say, and I'm, you know, Johnny had this interesting story. He traveled around the world. I had this kind of acute curiosity about people and the meaning behind why I might've met them and what their story told. The second thing was, is that every morning, my very first thought was, you got to quit smoking. I was a smoker at the time. I was a smoker who, if you'd asked me at the time, I would have told you it was my greatest pleasure. I would have never said to you in the cold light of day, oh, this is anything other than something I love. Meanwhile, every morning, the truth would come out and I would be like, I feel disgusting. I smell disgusting. How am I going to stop this? But by the afternoon, I'd forgotten about it. So, but when I read it writ large, that every single day I'd had the same thought that I'd forgotten about by 4 p.m. or whatever, that to me, it was like, okay, if you're not going to listen to yourself, what the hell are you going to listen to? Like you, like you're telling yourself what you need to do. Your body's telling you what you need to do. Wow. Love that. And I assume you quit smoking then. I did. Yeah, oh, good, I did. Good, good, good. I did. I did hypnotherapy or hypno, oh, okay. yeah, hypnotherapy and then like the patch and I quit. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much for your time today, Cynthia. I really enjoyed it. It went by so quickly and I learned so much and I'm so sure so did our audience. Thank you once again. Thank you. Please, anyone come and visit me at findyourpleasure.com. If you have any questions, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to today's episode and all the other episodes in this season as well. I've had the incredible opportunity to speak to some amazing people who are doing great things in this world and in this country and who've had incredible journeys loaded with ups and downs, challenges and successes. And I hope you've been able to learn something and take something away from my conversation and their inspiring stories. Thank you for all your support. It's truly what drives me to become bigger and better. I'm Manjeet Minhas, and this has been the Manjeet Minhas podcast. Cheers.